It's Thursday, August 3rd, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Former Vice President Mike Pence speaking in Indianapolis against a backdrop of wooden benches, wagons, and wooden farm equipment, and blending in quite nicely, I have to say, addressed a question about the most recent indictment against his former boss and potential death cult inspirer Donald Trump. You know, I'm a student of American history. And the first time I heard in early December, somebody suggests that as Vice President, I might be able to decide which votes to reject and which to accept. I knew that it was false. Our founders had just won a war against a king. And the last thing they would have done was vest unilateral authority in any one person to decide who would be the next president. I dismissed it out of hand, but sadly, the president was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers that kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. I like the itchy ears part. He has sticky fingers, octopus arms, a wandering eye, and itchy ears. Trump really does contain multitudes. And as far as the crackpot lawyers, I like it. Strong words from the steely-eyed veep. He went there. They're off, you know what I mean? There's Sydney the Kraken. I'm going to say it. She's an odd duck, just an odd duck. Rudy, John Eastman, that Clark guy. I mean, Donald's legal team. A couple apostles short of a Last Supper, if you know what I mean. And speaking of crazy, and while I will be the star witness in the legal proceedings of the guy leading in the polls by 30, I have, call it crazy, a modest proposal for the American voters' Republican electorate. Call it daft. Call it wackadoo. Call it as nuts as a rat in a cinder block latrine. How about you make me the Republican nominee? I know you're eager for the return of the Trump-Pence presidency. Fun fact, I'm the Pence. No, well... Okay, my former boss does have itchy ears. A few years ago, I, a Midwesterner of rectitude, that would be a selling point. Now you want the guy who bribed the porn star. I got a steely spine, but apparently I also have a bent antenna. Now, of course, you know, I pride myself on my terrible, terrible gaydar, but I also, and I've been honest with the American people about that, but I also apparently have really bad repubdar. Either way, I will be in Washington for the swearing-in. Not the inauguration, the trial. And for his sake, I do hope Donald's current lawyer is a bit more skilled than that lot of wacky willies and silly Sydneys. Pence out. On the show today, I'm going to steel man the arguments that Jack Smith's indictment wasn't that strong. What I listened to, and perhaps you did too, was a bunch of people saying they've got him now. Had to wait about 24 hours, and then I heard a bunch of different people saying, I don't know if they got him. So, thus the steel manning comes in. Not saying I agree with these arguments, but I'm saying that I, and maybe by extension you, should become familiar with them. But first, Eli Merritt is a political historian at Vanderbilt University, where he researches the ethics of democracy. We discuss that research and talk about the radical differences of each of the founding colonies based on location, how New England was a pivotal part of the creation of the country, and if the world would have been better if America was never formed. The author of Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution, Eli Merritt, up next.
I've gotten into the work of a scholar and thinker named Eli Merritt in the last couple of weeks, really. His new book is called Disunion Among Ourselves, The Perilous Politics of the American Revolution. From there, I was introduced to his substack, American Commonwealth. I began looking up his history uh, in being an expert in mental health. He has a lot of fascinating insights there. He also writes about just general ideas of how perilous a situation we are in, in terms of, oh, might we be on the brink of a civil war? He thinks not, but he's not totally sanguine about it. And I do think the new book, Disunion Among Ourselves, offers really interesting lessons that talk about the past, but in the great cases of all books that talk about the past, really comment on the present. Eli Merritt, welcome to The Gist. Great to be with you, Mike. All right, so let's start off. I'm making a movie of the book, and we have um, a high angle, and it's a drone shot, and we go into the halls in Philadelphia where the Declaration of Independence is being introduced, and we zoom past the founders, and we light upon the desk of a, a quill and parchment. It is a note taker. Who is taking notes, and what are the notes saying? What is he worried about this very document might breathe into being? Uh, well, there are many note takers. I think the one that you're referring to um, was the, the formal notes were taken a bit later. But so if we look at the Declaration of Independence and how it came about, uh, one of the things I assert in the book is that it came about as the product of a shotgun wedding. And one of the points of proof of the shotgun wedding of the founding period is, in fact, the adoption of the Declaration of Independence in 1776 by all 13 colonies when they did. And so that note taker, Thomas Jefferson, uh, the day after Richard Henry Lee of Virginia stood up and said, now the time has come. We need to unite as 13 colonies and declare our independence from Britain. Uh, the next day, Jefferson takes notes of what happened that next day and says that a number of colonies, the middle colonies and South Carolina drew a bright red line of disunion in the middle of uh, Independence Hall, which didn't yet go by that name. But what happened is, is these um, four middle colonies, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, and New York, basically said, we are not ready for this. If you force us into this, we're going to secede from the Union. And the middle colonies ended up finally joining the pro-independence uh, delegates the next month. Not, not, not gleefully, not, not because they uh, were interested in joining a, a confederation with those other colonies, soon to become states, but because they were caught in an impossible military situation, if you think of the map, the middle colonies, they had to join or die. They ended up deciding rather than stay with the British Empire, they would join in with the pro-independence delegates uh, because they feared that those states in the middle of, this, of Virginia and the New England colonies, which were ready to go, they weren't going to wait any longer, they would be the worst uh, fields of civil war in, in the entire Union if they did not join. So that's where you get the concept of the shotgun wedding, and that's just one example. Right. And to paint the picture, the colonies themselves, I mean, we know they were the 13 colonies and they became America. So maybe we think of them as proto-states, meaning proto-United States. But they were proto-states. They were almost nations unto themselves. They had a common cause, but they disagreed with each other about all manner of things. Some of them seemingly intractable, like the amount of debt each owed. They would be at each other's throats if they did not unify in opposition to the British, would they not? Unify in opposition to the British, and then also go on from there to form uh, some sort of mediating government 
where uh, where the problems could be. The, the, the conflicts that they were worried about, would they would fall into civil wars over, were finances, as you mentioned, also commerce, and most significantly, land. So they needed a supreme form of uh, peaceful arbitration for these things. And I think importantly to your to the first uh, point you made, we think that we went back and they decided, hey, we're giving up the British Empire. Why don't we form a nation instead, the 13 of us? They had no idea what they were doing. The, 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 some of them thought we we're going to form 13 independent republics because these were super autonomous. These 13 colonies were super autonomous of one another, 13 autonomous republics. But they thought, well, we probably have to join together in some sort of confederation in order for, for defensive and offensive purposes to protect ourselves for the sake of self-preservation. So then we think to ourselves, oh, so that's why they formed the United States. Well, it the most natural divisions that they thought should take place were separate confederations, a New England confederation for sure, likely a middle confederation and a southern confederation. The other line of division, which was discussed, was basically two confederations, north and south. But again, I'll say the reason they did not pursue that rather logical and natural pathway is they feared that those confederations would fall into civil war over these things, finances, commerce and all of the land that was under dispute. And then at the end of the revolution, uh, we acquired basically double the size of the original 13 colonies. And we had the Trans-Appalachian lands. They were going to fight civil wars over uh, who owned those Trans-Appalachian lands. And and there were such differences between the colonies. Now, I guess we look back and we have this uh, totalizing gloss of, oh, there were a bunch of landowning white men. But, you know, the Scotch-Irish tended to settle the South and the strains of... Uh, the strains of Christianity were slightly different from New England to the uh, to the South as well. The uh, just mindset, the economies, the climate, which was so important in an agrarian society, everything about these people that we call the founding fathers um, in reflection seems so homogeneous, but at the time was absolutely not the case. Absolutely not the case. And all the things you brought up are accurate. I would say the most worrisome uh, for all parties or all except New England parties, the most worrisome difference were actually political differences. So New England, <clears throat> Puritan, uh, Protestant, New England, they were all Protestant, but Puritan, uh, uh, New England, it was very well united. And something we don't understand is it was quite democratic. So the, the four New England uh, colonies and then states were very interested in the Republican form of government. Right. They right. Were, they the were, New England meeting hall, the New, New, New England town hall was the New England town hall, right? It wasn't the Georgian town hall. No. And they, it was worried. Wait, do they even want to go beyond Republicanism to democracy? And we could talk, why, talk about why that's not an unfair uh, fear that they had. So when you get to the middle colonies, you get quite a bit more aristocratic. And then when you get to the southern colonies, you get more aristocratic and somewhat feudal, of course, with uh, 40% of the population enslaved people. So the fears of New England were fascinating. There, there was great fear that ultimately what was going to happen is New England was going to either dominate the Continental Congress politically through, through all sorts of machinations, or in fact, there was great fear that New England might invade the other uh, states at some point. That's another reason that you needed to unite into one country. We have to remember that they lived in the age of imperialism. So if you form a separate country or a separate confederation, 
it was simply in the air that if there was something that you thought you would benefit from in a nearby colony or confederation and you were entirely dominant, yeah. you would just go take it. It was the age of imperialism. And also I'll end the part about New England by saying it was also the age where what mattered most in life for a sovereign nation was a navy. And New England was a seafaring people, and they were the only region that was absolutely seafaring. And so they could rather easily transform their talents on the waters and ships into a navy. Another reason. Right. So I, I love New England. I believe without New England, this country would have never happened. I think New England, I can say this because I was born and raised in Nashville, New England uh, was the spirit that really has pushed, pushed through uh, feudalism and, and aristocracy in the 13 colonies. And still, I think the spirit of New England is particularly important in our present and our future. You're channeling a Chamber of Commerce ad from <laughs> the 1980s. The spirit of Massachusetts is the spirit of America. Remember that one? Well, we all receive kickbacks <laughs> these days. So, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you busted me. <laughs> what do I got? I love New York. But that's important because, you know, New York was in a hinge position and the Hudson River was seen as, I think rightly so, since you lay out the importance of the Navy. The control of the Hudson would, would dictate control of, the, of America and to telescope uh, much of what you write about fascinatingly in the book. The reason why George Washington was such a brilliant choice was he was a tall and <laughs> brilliant guy, although kind of a little bit a little bit of a um, cipher, but that probably worked to his self-interest or his interest. Yeah. But New England was so dominant militarily, let's put a Virginian in charge of the army. That's a great way to settle our differences. And the people we tribute the founding fatherhood to now saw this. They were far-seeing. They crafted a country that was not uh, disunified. It was unified. However, I'm going to ask you the maximalist question in opposition. I've seen it argued because overlaying this whole argument is, of course, slavery. And there was a compromise that had to be made, sometimes in uh, fractions written down, like three-fifths, but certainly with the New Englanders having to accept this peculiar institution, uh, to quote words of the time. So there is a thought that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't, even though we do have America and there was union and it was the first democracy, sure, white male landowning democracy since Athens, was it really worth it? Would the history of humanity of the world have been better had either disunion occurred or no compromises had been made in order to allow slavery to exist? You know, America would just be like Canada. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a very provocative uh, question. And, uh, you know, the, the United States survived uh, starting in 1774 with the First Continental Congress. It survived uh, because of these fears of disunion and civil war. And that led the founders uh, not to provoke anything within the Continental Congress. And the story continues all the way to the Civil War. They would not let any discord provoke them into disunion because they feared civil war. And again, there were some positive outcomes. But if uh, if a northern uh, state, likely New England, had said, let's say after the War of Independence, you know, now that we're we, we secured independence, we really need to talk honestly here about the fact that it, it makes no sense to us to proceed down a line of union with the southern colonies unless we can agree at least on some sort of plan of gradual emancipation. That's what should have happened, right? But they couldn't do that because they knew based on evidence that, that one or more of the Southern colonies would secede. And then we would fall into this chain reaction where they would secede 
form separate confederations, fall into civil wars over these various things we've spoken of. And then foreign nations would also come in. So you'd have just a bloody mess. But now to your to your most acute question is, would that possibly have had civil war take place earlier than it did in the 1860s? Could the United States somehow have survived? And critically, there were, um, let me think of the number, some four, 400 to 500,000 enslaved people at that time versus 4 million at the time of the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's these contingencies are counterfactuals of history. I enjoy to think about them. Something different could have happened. The northern states all had abolished slavery uh, by 1804. The British Empire abolished slavery in 1838. Could we have had a much earlier abolition of slavery if they didn't stay in this shotgun wedding and make these this horrible compromise to perpetuate slavery? Fascinating question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess you, what you'd have to do is to weigh all the good of America being this democracy against all the bad of being the country that, I guess, de facto uh, perpetuated slavery longer than any others, though actually, in, in point of fact, the Dutch allowed it 10 years after we did in their colonies. I mean, that is tough. And when I said, oh, maybe we could be like Canada, you know, this was maybe England's plan that America would uh, continue as uh, essentially a commonwealth. And another, as you write about, another one of England's plans was to turn the colonies against each other if they were disunified. But the the geography of Canada isn't the geography of the American South. Maybe it's possible that no matter what happened, there'd still be that amount of slavery that we saw without also whatever benefits, salutary benefits there were for America being a democracy compromised as it was? I mean, I I have to think or project that if one way or the other, the uh, 13 colonies could have been granted uh, adequate uh, freedoms and rights uh, as a commonwealth. And of course, they would have had to have a swift reversal of what what are called the coercive acts, which were were absolute. After After the Tea Party, uh, Britain passed four acts that were absolutely oppressive to uh, Boston Harbor and, 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 and Massachusetts, including the imposition of martial law. So but if we had somehow gotten out of that mess, the, the, the colonies gotten out of that mess into a commonwealth, then we can only imagine uh, no other part of the, of the British Empire, except for some of the Sugar Islands, had so much slavery. But then let's just trace it out. Commonwealth, then the British Empire would have abolished slavery in 1838. And they compensated. They should have compensated slaves, of course, right? Enslaved people. But they instead they compensated slave owners. So could it have ended without blood in this case that you're projecting, taking our conversation down if we had remained a commonwealth? Quite possible is the only thing I could say. Yeah. That's interesting. So the reason that I'm engaged in this is that many of your, much of your project beyond this book talks about these huge issues, you know, America good or bad. And I think you think that America by and large is good, but it's also important to know the choices that were made to get us here. What is lost if we jettison the idea of America as, you know, a force for good. I mean, I'm all for looking historically in terms of accuracy and uh, and surfacing facts rather than dogma or ideology. That's fantastic. But if we come at it from a point of view that, you know, we're pretty agnostic on 
the moral force of America, what might we not be seeing clearly? My most immediate thought about that is uh, I actually think probably most entities, most people, most countries have within them forces of bad, to use your language, and also forces of good. Sure. I think they can coexist. The, the idea of contemplating that we had l somehow lost the United States um, in the 1770s, 1780s, I, I'm just, I, you're throwing me into a to an, something I can't even ponder because I suddenly start to think about the spread of, of revolution, which took place after that, emulated by, uh, by the United States, and uh, the spread of democracy, which took place. And then we fast forward to uh, World War I and World War II. Uh, I, I I have no idea uh, what would have happened there, but I but but I will say that you're bringing this up as well makes me think of one of the most important forces I think for for good and benefit within a society, and that is complex history. I think oversimplified, simplistic, absolutist thinking within history is an extraordinary peril, and but what I do believe in is complex history, and that we have to be able to take into ourselves. Uh, and it helps us to grow as a people, helps us to survive and thrive as a democracy. We have to be able to look at some deep question, such as why the founders perpetuated slavery, and be able to say, aha, they perpetuated slavery because of systemic racism and white supremacy. So that's one explanatory model. And another we look carefully, well, oh, look at this economic model. Both the North and South were deriving great benefit and profit from slavery and the slave trade. And then my book really accentuates, I acknowledge those, they've been written about a lot. I introduced a new concept called the survivalist interpretation of the founding period all the way up until the Civil War. And that is, again, if they had fallen into disunion over slavery or any other issue, they would have fallen into civil wars that possibly could have ended the country. So I bring that up because we need to be able to get to a place where that doesn't create cognitive dissonance for us, where we reject one or more theory or interpretation. We're able to, it matures our minds in this regard and all others in history to be able to say, wow, we're all three true. And then you come in, Mike, and say, well, I got a fourth one. And we evaluate it. We don't reject it outright because we're righteous thinkers. We let that complex history mature us as a people, and that helps us to mature as a democracy. And we will continue our conversation with Eli Merritt tomorrow as we dive deeper into the question of America's flaws and if the past few years have escalated those flaws to the point where demagoguery really does pose a huge danger to our country. That'll be Eli Merritt tomorrow. And now the spiel. So I, like you perhaps, inhaled the coverage of the Trump indictment as it broke. I spent the following 18 hours reading, listening, prepping for my interview yesterday with Ben Wittes. And as I mentioned yesterday, I was quite dissatisfied with the coverage offered by MSNBC and CNN because it was just a wall of consensus. No one is above the law. Thanks. Fox, on the other hand, was the bizarro world image. None of their experts I heard for a second giving any credence to the case, even though their news anchors did state what the indictment said with accuracy. So it fell to me, as it so often does in our atomized, siloed news environment, to seek out countervailing opinions. I thought it might be useful for you to be exposed to them as well, right or wrong, strong or weak, but more useful to be exposed to the strong ones. Podcasting, you know, is a slow medium. When news breaks, we wait. 
But one of the first responses to be available in podcast form, and guess because he, uh, he also has a radio show, was conservative host and firebrand Mark Levin. Mark Levin is of the lower variety, but he was up early with a conservative take. Here's how he started. Count one. Conspiracy to defraud the United States. How so? How so? Count two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. How so? That's some analysis. How so? I don't know. I did stick with it for another two unedifying minutes until he said, Trump always gets an Obama judge. How's that? How does that work? It doesn't, quite infamously and prominently with Judge Eileen Cannon. Next, next, was Commentary Magazine. They had on, as a guest, Andrew McCarthy of National Review. McCarthy wrote what has become the definitive conservative, legally-based critique of the indictment. Now, on this Commentary podcast, he did lay out his argument quite well, but it was Commentary contributor Matthew Continetti, who I am going to quote because he sums up the position quite succinctly. We don't really have proof of intent here, like we do in the documents case. I mean, the power of the documents uh, case indictment was that Trump is literally on tape saying, this is classified, I have it, and I'm showing it to you anyway, and he's doing it. And then there's another description of another instance as well. And of course, with the additional charges that were brought last week, we have his underlings essentially saying, well, the boss wants us to get rid of the video footage. And again, more evidence that he knew he was doing something wrong. None of that is present in this indictment. And that's what I found somewhat astonishing while reading it, because again and again and again, Smith is asserting in the indictment that Trump knowingly lied, but he never proves it's knowingly lied. Trump has never said that he actually lost the election. He never. And it doesn't seem that uh, Smith found any evidence of him doing it in private either. So I just want to, uh, uh, my first technical question is related to that, which is um, we think, I, I think that this case is much weaker uh, than the classified documents case. I was very focused on proof of intent. Was Smith going to get it? Was it necessary to get? I asked Ben about this yesterday. Ben said he thinks Jack Smith will prove it. The Strict Scrutiny podcast, hosted by three very esteemed and very progressive law professors, briefly discussed the proof of intent hurdle that the conservatives were talking about. They laughed at the idea that Trump honestly held his false beliefs. Fair enough, those beliefs are risible, but I don't think they answered all my questions, allayed all my misgivings. A major issue that has been discussed as long as we have been talking about the prospect of these indictments is the question of mental state. And that really goes to the more granular question of, did Donald Trump actually know that he lost? And in knowing that he lost, that he was throwing out legitimate votes with these schemes. Well, the indictment suggests that there is considerable evidence that, in fact, he did know that he lost and that his actions would result in the disenfranchisement of a substantial number of voters. So example one, Trump instructing his acting attorney general in December 2020 to, quote, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman, end quote. Not a great look for the Republican (laughs) caucus, I have to say. Another notable quote, Trump told Pence that he was, quote unquote, too honest for this conspiracy shit beamed down from the mothership. 
And finally, Sarah Isger and David French of the Dispatches Advisory Opinions podcast also chewed over the mens rea or the Trump frame of mind hurdle. They're going to prove all those things. And that's not enough under these statutes. They're going to have to prove he believed that they were lies, as in he believed that he lost the 2020 election and that there wasn't voter fraud. Well, that's my definition of a lie. My lie is you're saying something when you know it's wrong, as opposed to a falsehood, which you're saying something's wrong, whether you know it or not. But okay, well, it's good we define that then, because that's yeah, yeah, (laughs) a knowing lie. A lie is, yeah. as, as opposed to a mistake. So they're going to have to prove, if you believe beyond a reasonable doubt that that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he intentionally lied his way through this thing, then under the, and, and we'll talk about this, under the existing precedents applying these very broad statutes, I think they've, they've got a case. My take, well, I'm going to have David French on next week to discuss, and I do think the answers may all just come down to one phrase, D.C. jury. And there is another wrinkle in that the fourth of the charges, conspiracy against rights, does not depend on understanding Trump's mind. It just depends on evaluating his behavior. But that was the most surprising of all the charges, at least according to legal analysts legal analysts who today, 48 hours later, may first be exposed to and interacting with conclusions and assumptions other than their own. It's a shame there is not one source out there you could turn to for a breath of opinion. Well, there is always the gist. I'm the man for mens rea, coming to you from the capital city of the great state of mind, your one-stop shop for a smorgasbord of argumentation. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pascas, CLO of Peachfish Productions, not to be confused with ELO, the Electric Lobstar Orchestra. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening.